Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Would you please take your Bibles and open them to Daniel chapter 5 as we start a new chapter? Daniel chapter 5 in a Bible study that I've entitled The Incredible Writing on the Wall. The Incredible Writing on the Wall. And I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation in verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. And while Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. So verse 3, they brought gold cups taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and the nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. And while they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. It's important to remember that leaders come and go. Even though the leadership may be confident in their current position and confident that their reign will last forever, it doesn't. Never, ever. Leaders come and go. Even in your own relationship and position of leadership, perhaps in a church or maybe at work, you won't hold that position forever. The Bible says in Psalm 75 verse 7, if it's God alone who judges, he decides who will rise and who will fall. And I memorized it in the, in the New King James that God raises up one and he puts down another. And that is God's way and God's will. And for sure, Nebuchadnezzar, as we were introduced to him in the previous weeks, was one of those guys who believed his reign of leadership would never end. He was quoted as saying things like, my kingdom, my reign, my life will last forever. And yet those were his famous last words. He didn't last forever. He passed away. And history tells us that he died on October 7th, 562 B.C., and his life was one of wild ups and downs. But I believe in all that he went through, in his ups and his downs, I believe we will meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. That he represents one of the many unreachables that God reached in a big way and brought him to true humility and repentance. So by the time we come to chapter five now, it's about six years after his death. And there was a vicious fight going on for the leadership of the Babylonian kingdom. There were assassinations and conspiracies, secret plots, until finally a man by Nabonidus came to power. His son, his name is Belshazzar, that we meet here in chapter 5. He was left in control of Babylon while his dad went off into Arabia. And what does he do? He throws a party. As many kids do when their parents go away, he throws a party, and it wasn't a good one. He has an idea. Dad's out of town, so let's call all the leadership together, and here's what we'll do. We'll drink a lot, and we'll get drunk, 
and thus probably not planning for it, but as a result of any drunken party, they made a lot of stupid decisions. And the stupid decisions we notice is rooted in the overconsumption of alcohol. There isn't really anything to be said good about alcohol. And of course, we've studied these things in depth before, but many of you can testify that alcohol has a tendency of creating many problems and sorrows. Do you know in our culture today, I looked up the statistics, that Americans, just in the United States, that Americans spend over $243 billion on alcohol and alcohol consumption. That doesn't include all the things that go with alcohol. And I learned something in my studies today as I Googled this, that there is, a, there, there is a category of drunkenness that they call, and I quote, drunk shopping habits. That a person that develops a problem with alcohol and drunkenness, some people, and I didn't do the math, but it's probably about 20% of the $243 billion spent on alcohol, it says that an estimated, the, the article said, an estimated Ameri- that Americans spend over, drunk Americans spend over $40 billion a year shopping while they're drunk. And the implication is, is that drunkenness led them to buy things that they never intended to buy before. <sighs> things will happen when you get drunk, and they're not good. I learned today that every person addicted to heroin, as bad as it is, there are 15 other people addicted to heart, that would be considered in the category of hardcore alcoholics. And it's a problem now like it was then. The alcohol in Belshazzar's system caused him to defy God. Come back with me to verse 2 and don't miss the phraseology here. It says, while Belshazzar was drinking the wine... While he was in the process, these weren't orders before they started partying. These were orders in the midst of partying. And I can't tell you how many times in my own life before Christ and how many times I've ministered to people in the life of this church is that the trouble started while they were drinking. That the bad decisions happened when they brought under the influence of alcohol. That the issues in their life that they're currently dealing with started with a drink or a second drink that they never could foresee that that alcohol would eventually bring them under its control. I mean, they were just hanging with some guys and doing some things. And, and now that marijuana is illegal, so drinking leads to marijuana. And anyone that studied these things knows that marijuana is a gateway drug to other drugs. It just doesn't stop. It causes people to turn on their friends, to turn on their parents, to turn on their kids. It causes people to lose their jobs and literally turns well-meaning, good people in society into murderers as they choose to drink and drive, many of them. And I don't want you to miss this. This is something to pray about in your own heart. It was while he was drinking that he gave the orders. It could have easily said he planned the whole party out and told everybody, start doing it. Just, just take care of it before we get here. Then we'll do a lot of dumb things and then start drinking. It doesn't say that. It says in verse 2, wow, he was drinking. He gave orders to bring these gold cups and these silver cups that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple. Nebuchadnezzar took, when he ransacked Jerusalem, he took all of the valuables And the valuables that were in the temple became property of Babylon. 
But these, were no, these weren't just melted down gold developed into cups and pitchers and basins. This was gold set apart for God's use. We have a word for that. It's called sanctified. They were sanctified. They were set apart. Another word we might use for this is that they were holy unto the Lord. They were to be used for the worship of God. These weren't any just ordinary you know, Tupperware from your cabinet or uh, maybe a plate that you got at home goods. These are valuable resources that God said, reserve them. Don't use them any other way. Use them for my worship. Take care of them, honor them, holy them. And you know, in the same way, in the New Testament, the Bible says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's set apart for God's use. Take care of it. Make sure it's used and set apart and holy unto the Lord. And it's these that while he was drinking, while he was drunk, he said, we're going to use them. And I believe because he needed to go get them, I believe that implied in the text is he knew what they were for. He understood their background. And that's why they weren't just commonly available and just ready to be taken off the shelf. They had to go get them. They needed to bring them. And his goal in verse 2 there at the end was he wanted to drink from them in no, with his nobles, wives, and his concubines. So he calls, to, he calls them to be part of the party. And what he's demonstrating is he's demonstrating to the Babylonians, to all that were there, that to him, these vessels mean nothing. You say, how can you say that? Well, by his actions. He's showing everybody in Babylon that they meant nothing. And that he has no respect for the God for which they represent. And what happens in verse 4? While they drink, they praise their idols that were made of the same materials. They use the vessels of God to participate in practice in idolatry. Why is he doing this? It's a good question to ask. I mean, I understand that he wants to party. And I can understand that he wants to impress these folks in his dad's absence. Uh, in, in the political realm, just looking at it in a very practical way, he can see in his own mind, no pun intended, the writing on the wall that he would, as many have gone before him, take over for his dad, calling the leadership together in his dad's absence, building up the confidence and building up the political alliances. I, I understand all that. I even understand an unbeliever deciding to go into the party scene and waste their life away as they see no purpose, as they see no, no overarching story of their life authored by God. I get that. But why? To me, it's a deeper question. I understand what's happening here, but then I step back and say, but really, why? Does anybody jump into this type of behavior? And for the unbeliever, there's blindness spiritually. Unable to see the value that God has placed upon you. Unable to understand the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Unable to understand spiritual things where the Bible says that the natural man doesn't understand the things of the spirit. But not only for the unbeliever, but for the believer. Why does a believer go back to the vomit that they were saved from? And the central theme, I think, of backsliding and going back to vomit like a dog goes back to his vomit is a hard heart toward the things of God. 
a hard heart toward the faithfulness of God. And hard hearts lead us all to make really bad decisions. Maybe it's a part of your heart that's been deadened because God, you, you feel disappointed in God. Have you ever considered that disappointed in God? You know, disappointment, it comes from the, from the sense that you expected one thing and you received another. And therefore, because you didn't receive what you asked for, you're disappointed. But disappointment can easily lead to offense. We're now... Consider the fact that maybe tonight you're offended by God. You believe that God should have done one thing and he did another thing and that offends you. Remember what Jesus said? He said, blessed are those who are not offended by me. Like, you know that the offenses will come not because of sin. Any offense that you have toward God tonight is not because God sinned against you. It's because you expected one thing and you received another. And if possible, you find yourself purposely ignoring the work of the Spirit in your life, then the Bible speaks of you grieving the Holy Spirit, quenching the Spirit of God in your life, going against your own conscience and your own morality. Spiritual blindness is, in the unbeliever, something you're born into. But the believer, it's not necessarily spiritual blindness as much as it is turning a blind eye to the truth that you already know. It goes something like this. I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Every believer, whether you say those words or not, if you turn back to a sinful lifestyle, you maybe go back to a party scene or you, re- you purposely rebel against your parents or in your marriage, you have to process in your mind, I know this is wrong and dismiss it in some way. And it's not too late for you to come back and acknowledge that before God because he loves you and even the people that hurt you love you, that you hurt love you and maybe even hurt you and you can work it out through the pain. If you choose to turn a hard heart, a blind eye toward the truths that you know from God already, it will cost you. It will be painful. And I know you could never see yourself using the things of God to worship idols, to have an idolatry. But I don't think Belshazzar really realized what a rebel he would be. I know Nebuchadnezzar didn't in our previous studies of what, how deep-seated his pride was that led him to being like an animal and walking around for seven years, this fingernails on his head, just like a, like a beast. There's a great contrast in the Bible between God's loving grace toward our lives and how he loves man and the devil and his pride and his sinister schemes where the devil uses man. God loves and serves man. The devil uses and destroys man. And it's a choice that we all need to make. Belshazzar on another level, this is fascinating stuff. There's the human level of this, but there's also, more importantly, the spiritual level of this. And Belshazzar, even though he didn't know it, as he is celebrating, he was celebrating at his own funeral. And he was fulfilling prophecy. Because Jeremiah gave specific details about Babylon's fall more than 50 years before it happened. If you're a note taker, you want to study these things, check this out. Number one, Jeremiah 50 prophesied that a northern nation would conquer the city. Secondly, the nation would be associated with the Medes, according to Jeremiah 51. 
Thirdly, Babylon was described as a greatly fortified city, Jeremiah 51. Babylon, number four, would be taken by a trick or a snare, Jeremiah 50. And the city's demise would involve the drying up of water in Jeremiah 51. Also, this would happen while a great feast was in progress, Jeremiah 51. And then finally, it would be accomplished when Nebuchadnezzar's grandson was in power, Jeremiah chapter 27. So while this is all happening, and there's a wild party, you know, you can picture it today like a rave party. There's all kinds of lights going on, lasers going on, and all the beats and everything, everybody, oh, our gods, and we don't like the God of Israel, on and on, on and on, on and on, boom. Verse five, in an instant, suddenly. Let me just say this. I have ministered to a lot of drunks in my lifetime, and what a privilege it is. What a privilege it is to talk to someone that is just unable to communicate. Sometimes I've ministered to people who can't even stand up and I've watched with my own eyes. Suddenly they got sober right in front of me. I mean suddenly. There was such a super, whatever it does that our body works through alcohol, God accelerated in seconds and they were sober right in front of me. It's amazing. God can work that fast in a lot of different ways. You know, as we're praying and we're waiting, you go, oh, Ed, it's been so hard waiting. It's been so hard waiting. It's been a year. It's been two years. It's been six years. It's been seven years. It's been, but then there's always that sudden work of God. And when he does a work, he's gonna do it fast. I love it. Verse five, it says, suddenly they saw the fingers of a human hand riding on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. The king shouted for the enchanters, the astrologers, the fortune tellers. This is a bad habit with the leaders of Babylon, isn't it? They're always the first ones they turn to. He cries for them to be brought before him. He said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor and will have a gold chain placed around his neck. He'll become the third highest ruler in the kingdom, verse eight. But when all the king's wise men had come in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. So the king grew even more alarmed. His face turned pale. And I'm not entirely sure what a pale face does when it turns more pale, but all the blood is coming out, rushing out of his face. And his nobles too were shaken. In the midst of this party, God reveals himself suddenly. God shows up and he breaks up the party. And he begins to write on the wall. And he's, this writing as, remember Belshazzar is also a guy that God wants to get their attention. I know we get, so, it, we get so pushed back by people's attitudes and opinions and personalities. We think, oh man, because you can't reach them, that God can't reach them. But listen, God can reach Nebuchadnezzar in a dream and he can reach Belshazzar and everybody there by appearing and putting up a, the appearance of a hand, a finger to write on the wall. It must have been a trip. It must have been so dramatic that nobody mistook it for a drunken hallucination. They received it as the sobriety that it was. And he is messed up in his mind, mentally astonished, physically drained as reality is setting in. I believe this is one of those sudden sobriety moments. But there's something interesting going on outside 
the large and ominous walls of Babylon at this time during this party. Four years before Babylon fell, the Medes and the Persians had attacked and conquered most of the surrounding cities and villages. Many believed that the thousands of lords and nobles here in Babylon partying were there because they left their posts in retreat and just let them take over. When the going gets tough, the tough guys get going. And Babylon was known to be sitting on enough food reserves that could last 20 years. And at the same time, the Euphrates River flowed right through the city. So not only did they have an ample amount of food stored up, but they also had a regular continual supply of water. And in the mind of the partiers, they're safe and content. But things are happening outside as God fulfills prophecy. The Medes and the Persians at this time were actually damming up the Euphrates River, piling tons of dirt into it, shifting the riverbed and rechanneling it. And it would only be a matter of time before they conquer and rule. And reality sets in with these fingers and it rocks them. And it rocks this young, pompous co-ruler of Babylon. So why did his knees shake? Was it just fear? I believe it was a combination of fear and guilt as he comes to the reality of the current situation. If he was right with the Lord, these things wouldn't have shaken him so bad. If he was in right relationship with him, he would have been eager to find out the message that God had for him. But because he already had a guilty conscience, the, whatever the supernatural event on the wall was happening shook him. Haven't you found that to be true? When you're talking to someone that has a guilty conscience, they're afraid of the word of God. Many times they even express a fear of judgment of God. Because with a closed Bible, you don't understand the grace and the mercy of God. And with a closed Bible and a life of rebellion, you automatically begin to interpret God into your own image. And then as you interpret God into your own image, you start to process, well, God is really bad. And I'm really against him. And there's no hope for me. So I might as well just keep doing what I'm doing because I've dug myself so deep. And here he is in an emotional response. If he was right with God, things would not have shook him so badly. But here he is deep in sin. And so he asked for help. Notice in verse 7, the king shouted. He shouted for the enchanters and the astrologers and the fortune tellers. He wanted them to be brought to him and he said, whoever can read this, I'm going to reward you. Somebody, anybody help me. No matter how far you are from God tonight, no matter what decisions you've made, no matter where you find yourself, you might be listening in on the radio right now, having no desire to be in a church service. No matter how far you are and where you might be hearing this, It's never too late to cry out to God. It's never too late. You might even find yourself crying out for help in the wrong place. You might even say, anybody, somebody help me. God loves to answer. He hears those prayers. Even if you call out for the enchanters and the sorcerers, God still hears your cry for help. And it's a step in the right direction. I'm certainly not encouraging in any way calling out for astrologers or trying to get help from this world when you know you can get help from God. But the cry for help is a good thing. And I know you're scared, and I know it's hard, but it's going to be okay as you come back or you come to God for the very first time. 
in the astonishment, this would have been their time to repent. This would have been the time to change. But they don't. The witness of God is no doubt flowing through the kingdom. Daniel has a high position, so the testimony of God is there. His friends have a testimony. There's a talk of the town. They know that there are men that are dedicated to the one true God, the men that those vessels mean a lot to. They have a life of no compromise. They've lived with the rewards of God on their behalf. They've spoken of God's faithfulness. They've spoken of God's reality, but we don't read of repentance here. I find a great parallel, I don't know if you do as well, but I see a very similar parallel in our own country. We happen to be in a season of relative prosperity, so we don't hear much of this. We don't hear much crying out, we don't hear much desperation. The stock market's at an all-time high, unemployment is an all-time low, and so in the times of prosperity, there becomes an infighting within a culture like that where my bills are paid and I've got bigger this and I can get that and, and if I lose this job, I mean, I've been reading up and I even talked to a few friends that in today's job market, they'll go in, they'll have someone come in for an interview, they'll be offered the job, they will show up on Monday and ghost that job on Tuesday. You guys know what ghosting is? They disappear. They don't show back up after one day of working. Not because they're lazy necessarily, not because, but because somebody offered them a dollar more. And they went to that job. And they went to that job. There are such times of prosperity in our culture where we don't really see any difficulty. We don't really see any need for God. And we live in a culture where our nation, in very many ways, has demonstrated a rejection of God. Turned their backs upon Him. Seen high rates of abortion just alone. There's a, a few websites that track these things. Since 1973 in the United States of America, at the time uh, this afternoon when I edited my notes, this number's so big it may not even affect you. 61,806,961 babies have been aborted since 1973 just in our country. And as some pastors that have come before me in this pulpit as guests, with the nation, our nation with blood in our hands, unrepentant, God is being very gracious to hold back his judgment on a nation that's turned their back on God. And may I be clear, this is not a political issue. It's a moral human issue. Because on that same website, you'll see the number expanded for worldwide abortions. A nation cannot expel God from its culture and replace him with fanciful human theories and expect to experience the blessings of God. You can't expect a nation to give lip service to God and yet not honor God in their actions. Just in the last 50 years, violent crime has increased by 560%. Some reports report that divorces have doubled Pornography is not only a multi-billion dollar industry, but pornography is in the pocket of many men and women that attend church every Sunday, unrepentant. And then you look at your life and you go, well, I don't understand why I'm not experiencing the blessings of God. It's impossible to experience the fullness of God when we've turned our back on Him. 
when we've ceased in relationship to him and we just think, well, it's a time of prosperity, so there's really nothing pressing me to cry out to God and I've got a lot of time on my hands and I've got a lot of technology in my pockets and, and I've got a lot of, of, of opportunity before me and, and we neglect. It would, be, it would be the same thing any close relationship you have on earth. If you treated them like you treated God, you'd lose that relationship too. You'd grow distant. You didn't talk, you didn't call, you didn't care, you didn't check in, you didn't uh, invest time, and you didn't serve, you didn't love in a spiritual way, you didn't pray together, you're not in the word together, you're not, ga- like, it, it, this is a relational issue. It's not simply a spiritual issue, but it's a relational issue. And here we are in a time in Nebuchadnezzar, or excuse me, in Babylon's time, where the, the reputation of God is all throughout the kingdom, but the leaders are partying. And I didn't get the statistic, but in the region of our country, the most alcohol consumption is up in the northeast around where our capital is, per capita. The leaders. But before we point the finger at anyone, we have to, you know, as my pastor used to say, you point the finger, you got three coming back at you. We have to think of our own leadership and how we're leading our own family, our own friends, our own homes. It's on us, it's not on them, it's us. God's speaking to us. As it's well been said in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven and forgive their sins and restore to their land to them. There'll be a great work of restoration, a great work of revival. Belshazzar and his trusted advisors are shaking before the handwriting is on the wall because they're completely against the things of God. And it's still not too late to repent. Still. Verse 10. But when the queen mother heard that what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall and she said to Belshazzar, Long live the king. Don't be so pale and frightened. There's a man in your kingdom who is within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. Verse 13. So Daniel was brought in before the king and the king asked him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles brought from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? I have heard that you have the spirit of the gods within you and that you're filled with insight, understanding, and wisdom. Verse 15. My wise men and enchanters have tried to read the words on the wall and tell me their meaning, but they can't do it. I'm told that you can give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read these words and tell me their meaning, you'll be clothed in purple robes of royal honor and you'll have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. We notice that Daniel was not at this feast. He too needed to be called. We wouldn't expect him to attend, would we? We have a distinction here between a man of God and those that are not following God. He wasn't there, but at the same time, he becomes the most honored guest. I think that this invitation came at the answer to the prayers of Daniel. As he continued to pray for open doors to speak to the leaders of the kingdom, 
that this was answered prayer. I find this to be true in so many times in my life that there's so many natural things that have God's hand written all over them, like his handwriting all over them that I don't associate with God but rather some decision I made or some logical thing I thought of or something other than, no, I think this was a, I was, I, I pray and I probably forgot that I was praying about it and God didn't forget and he answered his prayer at, right, the right, at just the right time. And it's not just our ingenuity and our wisdom and our skills and, and our knowledge, but that God is the author behind the scenes arranging things. Daniel saw the hand of God in Nebuchadnezzar's life, and I'm sure his constant prayers included an open door. He wanted an open door with the new young king. Well, he gets it. Belshazzar, he represents so many people living today. They don't really care what you have to say or want to hear until something huge happens. And then they're ready to call you. And we have to be ready, don't we, to get rid of any cynicism, sarcasm, especially that attitude of I told you so, but instead to receive them. In James chapter 5, at the end of James, you want to turn over there with me? James chapter 5. This is such a beautiful reminder. You might want to pick up the study on the, on the app to listen to it on how to receive someone that has fallen away and has come back. How you can be prepared and ready for it. The last thing they need is for us to be cynical, for us to be sarcastic, for us to say, I told you so, because I'm sure they already know. And that's why they chose to come back. We want to receive them in love. We want, them to, uh, rece- we want to receive them in the, the, the fruit of God's restoring, restorative work. At the end of James 5, would you pick up with me in verse 19? I love this. And we did a whole study on how to receive those that come back. It says, My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. And isn't that our heart? So amen to that. It's so good. And that's why we have so many exhortations in the Bible to be ready and to be diligent. Because I believe God has seasons for certain people, golden opportunities for the church to receive them, for believers to minister to them, the people that don't want to listen to you, the people that don't return your phone calls, the, the people that when you do get a chance just dismiss you, but then all of a sudden, through a series of events, God has spoken to them and they've called for you, represented here by Daniel. Verse 17, Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts and give them to who, someone else, but I'll tell you what the writing means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that the people of all races, nations, and language trembled before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill and spared those he wanted to spare. He honored those he wanted to honor and disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. Verse 20. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne. If you like to write in your Bibles, you can circle that phrase, brought down. That's another way of saying he was humbled. He was humbled. He was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal and lived among the wild donkeys. 
He ate grass like a cow and was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned, until he learned that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. You are his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all of this, and yet you have not humbled yourself. For you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from the temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. So God has sent this hand to write this message. Well, when you call for a man like Daniel, you better expect to get a sermon from him and an explanation. He's going to tell you the truth and the whole truth. I don't want your gifts. I don't want your big gold chain and your purple wardrobe. But I'll tell you the truth. And I'll tell it to you for free. We have the principle, do we not? Freely we've received, freely we give. And here he is demonstrating that. Belshazzar, you're prideful, you're selfish, and you're foolish. Belshazzar, you have sinned against knowledge. You knew better. And here comes the review. First of all, you knew about your grandpa. It was common knowledge. You knew the whole testimony. His life was a decree to the entire world and was commonly known. And because of everything you knew, you still chose not to humble yourself. Even though you knew it. You knew it and didn't act on it. Which is a good reminder to all of us. God holds us accountable for what we know. Some of you know more and you have a higher level of accountability. Some of you know less and yet your accountability, although it's less, is from the Lord and to the Lord. God holds people and nations accountable for what they know, not for what they don't know. In Luke chapter 12, verse 48, it says, but someone who does not know and then does something wrong will be punished lightly. But when someone has been given much, much, much will be required in return. When someone is given much, much will be required in return. Or in the New King James, to whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given. Jot that down in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. And in our nation, in our culture, our world today, it is so blessed. With the, the advent of cellular technology, with the advent of underwater fiber optics that span under the ocean floor around the world that carry around what we know as the internet today where in our pocket our, our little pocket phones have more computing power than the spaceship we sent to the moon <laughs> where we have in our vocabulary the word google when we find about when we want to find out facts about something let alone the technology has kind of been taken for granted but still widely exists. We have over-the-air television. We have, you know, we have cable television. We have satellite television. We have YouTube and Vimeo. We, we have radio. We have uh, digital radio, AM radio, FM radio. We have books. We have libraries. We have digital. The world is without excuse. 
There are more churches today, more Christian camps, more conferences. Some of us have heard more sermons than people that are in heaven right now. You know, if there are people in heaven right now that never heard a sermon, they just heard the gospel. And then God took them home. And here we are sitting on hours upon hours upon hours of sermons. Do you not think that God won't hold us accountable for what we know? For God holds you accountable for what you know? I believe that there's great accountability to us. We live in a country with such great freedom and even some protections for the practice of our religion. And for everyone listening to my voice right now, wherever you are in this room downstairs, if you're listening on a radio station here in Denver or somewhere around the country, around the world perhaps, podcasting and on and on it goes, you know enough to be saved at this very moment and you know enough to surrender your life to the love of God. Which is why in the life of our church, not only do we want to remind you of the great weight of sin and the separation that you have before, between you and God, not only do we want you to know about your sin, but we want you to know about the forgiveness that's available through Jesus. That God so loved you that he sent his only begotten son to die a perfect sacrifice for you. That if today you would repent and turn away from your sin, if you would just be real about your behavior today, you just be real about where you've been and what you've been thinking, you just be real that you're not a worshiper of God and yet you choose to embrace God, God will receive you. We emphasize that over and over again. We emphasize it with your kids in Sunday school. We emphasize it in the main teaching here. We emphasize it in the junior high. We emphasize it in our high school. We emphasize it in our college gathering, in every gathering that we have. It's the desire to evangelize and see a person won to Christ, discipled in Christ, sent out for Christ. It's why for us as a church, we've invested a lot of our resources and time and people and hours in radio technology, in uh, apps and websites and, and just getting the word out in a multiple way to be one other voice in the loud voices that are out there trying to grab people's attention. I received an email this morning or yesterday that I sent out to the team it was just a quick little blurb of, a, of someone that was surfing through YouTube and came across an old study that I shared. Uh, it was a testimony that I gave in New Jersey at the radio outreach there and how God used that testimony. Of all, who knows how many, I, don't, I should have checked how many like, videos are up on YouTube and some of you might think, why would you spend so much time on YouTube? There's so many teachers there, so many better teachers there and so much on there and all of that I would agree with you. But all the investment, putting a video up there to minister to this one gal in New Jersey, the power of the gospel. And you wonder, how does a nation get changed? A nation gets changed one person at a time, where that person then runs back home and begins to share with their family and their loved ones. And, and God's still changing people one at a time through your life. And why a few years ago for our city, having such a burden for this city, not really understanding that the impact that we would make, but hoping and dreaming. And might I just say, as you're hoping and dreaming about serving Jesus, keep hoping and dreaming and do something. Do it. Because God wants to do exceeding, according to 1 Corinthians, God wants to do, or excuse me, Ephesians, God wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you think or ask. So keep hoping and dreaming for the things of God. And a few years ago, probably I, I don't, maybe almost 10 years ago, we invested in a radio station. 
despite all the criticisms and all the people that said, why are you doing that? God doesn't use radio anymore. Nobody listens to radio anymore. And, and uh, all of that, you're wasting money. I, I, I can't even tell you all the things that we heard about the critics that rose up when you take a stand to say, no, I think the Lord wants us to do this. And he opened the door and he's given the resources and he's going to give the rest. I think he's going to do this. And yet, where, what is happening today but that God continues to use FM radio through this little church to impact lives, even when you go to bed. When you go to sleep tonight, the radio is still going to be on and people are still going to listen and lives are still going to be changed. Because while you're sleeping, there's a whole other group working and driving. And while you're sleeping, there's a whole other group on the other side of the world that's wide awake and just waking up for the morning and stumbling upon this station or that station. And you, you begin to think about all of the work and all the effort and all the warfare and all the difficulty and all of the resources and all of the money and on and on and on that list goes. And you, then you come to the conclusion, well, is it worth it? You tell me if it's worth it. I say it's worth it. And God is going to honor that. And he's going to honor our commitment to reach this city. And just to be in one small tool in what God is doing. And that's why we use and why we've committed to not be less aggressive when it comes to evangelism, but more aggressive. And, and where our limitation is become anything short of sin to reach the lost. Sin is the line. And as we've introduced that over the last couple of years, it's made some of you very uncomfortable. Because while it isn't sin, it goes against where you are in your personal walk. And it rubs again. It's just a change. And so I don't know if I would do that. And, and, and there's where God is just bringing you to the place where, man, if it's not sin, then what's the issue exactly? And I know what the issue is. It's usually communicated like this. Well, I don't like it, Ed. But if it's not sin and someone gets saved, is it worth it then? And the answer is yes. And we all have limitations and we all have lines that we've drawn and God honors those in our lives. But it's, so, it's such a beautiful thing when we don't dwell on the past. We celebrate the past. It was like, oh yes, rah, rah, God was good in the past. But we anticipate the future. Because you know, let me just, we'll get to the rest of the chapter, but let me just lay this before you. You were someone's prayer of the future. You were in the future of someone else. Whether it was just a little baby born in the hospital and your parents were praying for you in the womb, you were the future. Whether you were a lost as lost could be and your grandmother was praying for you, that was the future they were praying for. They weren't coming to, I'm so glad that in my life that my buddy, when he got saved, just didn't say, oh, I'm saved, my girlfriend's gonna get saved, that's all, in, that's all that matters, my family's saved. But that he began to think, no, no, it's not just what happened, it's what can happen. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that when Gino Geraci got saved, that he told a guy, Skip Heitzig, about Jesus Christ. How could he know what God would do in Skip Heitzig? How could he possibly know? But I'll tell you this, he was looking forward, anticipating what God would do while he appreciated what God did. And I'm so excited about what God would do. I'm so excited about what he wants to do. I think it's, it's like, yes, anything short of sin. And no one needs to change their convictions 
You can have your convictions before the Lord. But isn't it amazing when thing, changes are happening and things are happening that God is saying, okay, let's revisit your convictions. And you go, no, 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 I'm pretty comfortable. I like it the way it is. And yet the Lord's always wanting to do something fresh in our lives. So notice now, just a little bit of insight of what God wants to do moving forward that Daniel probably was praying for Belshazzar. And when he got the audience, he told him the truth. And here's what it said. This is the message, verse 25, that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is what these words mean. Mene means numbered, and God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed, and you have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Uparsin means divided, and your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes, and a gold chain was hung around his neck, and he proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Numbered, numbered weighed and found wanting, divided and broken up. And even as the writing was on the wall, the Medes and the Persians were right outside the gates. History tells us a drunken Babylonian guard forgot to lock the gates. And the Medes and Persians entered the city. Babylonian historical chronicles say that a special division ran straight for the upper platform where Belshazzar was and where he would have been sitting. And that very night, Babylon fell, October 13th, 539 BC. And once again, we find a man in rebellion, falling. And the kingdom given over to another man by the name of Darius the Mede. And 200 years before it happened, God predicted it. One of the elements of evidence that you have that your Bible that you hold in your hand is true and reliable is what? The P stood for predictive prophecy. That God says something and he causes it to come to pass. There's a last night for everyone. A last breath. In a real way, all of our lives hang in the balance. And none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. There's a last night a last breath, a last statement for everyone. All of us are weighed in God's balances every day. And the question is, what do the scales reveal and what are our lives measuring up to be? The nation was under judgment, the leadership was under judgment, and the people were under judgment. And for the believer, the judgment the judgment is not for your salvation because Jesus took that upon himself. For us as believers, there's a judgment of what we do with what we have. Held accountable for what we've done with what we have and the knowledge that we have. What kind of life we've lived in the grace of God, relying upon him and abiding in him. For the unbeliever, for those of you disconnected from God today, judgment is exactly what it sounds like. Your soul will be judged. And I wonder if like Belshazzar, Daniel would stand before you today and say, you knew all these things and you still yet rebelled. And there's still 
a chance tonight for you to return to the Lord, to repent of your sins today. So Father, I know that uh, we read you know, distant history and, and sometimes we don't feel so connected to it, but Daniel is such a connecting a book of the Bible filled with real people and real intrigue and real challenge. And, and God, your presence is thick throughout the book of Daniel. We get caught up in the exciting prophecies of Daniel. But God, encourage us and remind us today to be caught up in the God of the prophecies, not just the prophecies of God. That we would be caught up in your presence tonight and enjoy and just thank you. Maybe tonight there's a writing on the wall of a heart or a mind. And you're writing many, many tekel uparsin. And there's a, a, a heavy sense of what you're doing right now is not right. And you're calling men and you're calling women. You're calling boys and girls back to yourself. Drawing them with your cords of love. And, you know, I, I know I've been in places uh, when my knees were shaking and I was pale. And it was always a revelation of I got caught. And I was wrong. And I just publicly acknowledge to you, God, tonight I'm thankful that you gave me the opportunity to repent. And that you give us the opportunity to repent. And that like Belshazzar, you give us the chance to humble ourselves. And so as I'm praying, maybe you need to just consciously humble yourself before God. There's no need for a public demonstration. I mean, I don't need for you to get up and walk up and like, yeah, that's between you and the Lord. But this, this sense that you're not living a humble life before God, a dependent life. You're kind of partying in his presence. You're, you're sort of using his utensils for your own purposes. You remember that time when they were rebuilding Jerusalem? They took the wood so precious and separate that was intended to line the insides of the temple and they lined their own houses with wood paneling. Remember that? They, they had what was God's and they didn't use it for God. And God is just humbly calling you back, church. You listening, catching up on this on the app, God's calling you back. You that are on the radio right now, God is inviting you to himself. He loves you and cares for you. And there are those that have no relationship with God. You're invited to turn away from your sins today. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you can just ask God to forgive you. You don't even need to repeat a prayer after me. You don't have to say my words. You can just express yourself to God and say, I've sinned, God, and I want to follow you. I believe you sent Jesus Christ for me. And God will hear the heart manifested through the words. He'll hear it. And as we sing this song, allow it to minister to your heart. Allow it, the grace of God to flood you. We're grateful we're not in the position of Belshazzar in a real way, but in small ways we can be. In small ways we can get caught up in our pride and our arrogance and and just God is so gracious to us. So maybe today you just, in the time of the song, you just declare your gratefulness for God's grace in your life.
that you don't get what you deserve. His mercy. Isn't that so good? His mercy. So let's stand together, church. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.